You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to the Midweek Podcast. We are in Genesis 18 today, and we are trying to cover all of it. So that means we we really got to just hop in right here. If you're familiar with Genesis 18, then you know that we are working up to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and what's going to happen there. But we're not going to actually get into the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah today. We're going to address everything that leads up to it. And that starts with a theophany. Now, we've talked about this in the podcast a lot, so I apologize for those of you who have heard it a hundred times, but we got to cover it again. However, I'm going to try to do it briefly because I don't want uh, everyone to be like, ah, here here we go over this all again. If you really want to learn more about this, go through the whole podcast that we've been doing on Genesis. You'll hear it more. A theophany in the Bible is when God shows up in physical form, kind of unexplained. You can't really follow it. You're just like, what on earth is happening? This, for many people, is the first theophany in the Bible because it just says that the Lord, or Yahweh himself, God himself, is walking on the land with two angels by his side, and they walk right up to to Abraham. And Abraham sees God just walking around as though he just ran into someone at the grocery store. He's like, oh, hey, God, how you doing? Why don't you come over? Let me... Uh, show you some hospitality, make you some food, wash your feet, all that kind of stuff. That is where today's story starts. Now, this is weird for many people, but if you've been tracking with our podcast, this is not the first time Abraham has ran into God. For many of us, we're like, okay, this is the first time that Yahweh is just walking around. Yeah. But if you're paying close attention to the other stories throughout the Old Testament, you start to realize that Yahweh, when he's walking around in physical form, he has a lot of different names. The word of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Uh, He's walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Now, Abraham's already had visions of the word of the Lord. uh, And um, Stephen, I believe, in Acts, talks about how God came to... um, came to Abraham and originally told him where to go when he first met him. Yeah, so so in Genesis, we just see that God tells Abraham to go to the land that he's going to show him. But if you were to go into Acts uh, 7, 2, um, when Stephen re-preaches that, he says, The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And then God tells him, to go to the land that he'll show him. So there is this understanding throughout the Bible's wider picture that this is not the first time Abraham has ran into this physical manifestation of God. Now in the New Testament, again, we know what that physical manifestation of God is. It's Jesus. But we know in the New Testament, he's born of humanity. He's subjected to human skin. It's still this, this, uh, this uh, physical manifestation of God that is not God in his fullness, because if we saw God in his fullness, we would just die, right? That's what the Bible tells us. But Jesus becomes a physical manifestation of God that we can see in uh, a human form. 
Now, if you were to go to the Old Testament, and many scholars propose this, this angel of the Lord, this word of the Lord, this uh, Yahweh just walking around running into Abraham, many would say, like, this is this is Jesus. This is him before he was born of human flesh. Um, we know that he's the son of God, so he's a spiritual being. Um, and we know that he has always existed. Jesus did not just come into existence when he was born of, of human flesh through Mary. Instead, he's always been around. The Bible is very clear about that. So um, many scholars, surprisingly many scholars, like I can't believe we don't hear this in church more often with how many scholars go this direction or at least propose this direction, would lean to say like, yeah, this this physical manifestation that is a spiritual being that is God, but isn't God in the sense that when you see him, you die. That's in the Old Testament, that's that's Jesus. So there are uh, there are some uh, some links right there. And the reason we start there is because again, we've got Yahweh just walking around and running into Abraham in physical form. And if you think that's the first time it's happened, then this is like a theophany to that to you makes no sense. And it's just a theophany because theophany means, hey, it's weird, but God just showed up here. But if you're paying close attention, you're like, oh, this isn't the first time. Abraham actually recognizes God as he's walking around as though he's seen him before. Okay, so the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now, let's pause again, because uh, we've, we've talked about this. Uh, this is a terebinth, if you will. Um, trees could carry kind of like a sacred um, background in the Bible. They could be places where you met uh, God. We've actually talked about this before, but let's hit on it again. Uh, Michael Heiser in the Unseen Realm says, The Oak of Moray and the Oaks of Mamre are each what scholars call a terebinth a sacred tree that got its sacred reputation because it marked a spot where divine beings appeared. In fact, Oak of More literally means Oak of the Teacher. The point behind the name would be that some divine figure teaches people or dispenses information at this location, what we commonly think of as an oracle. All right, now let's change sources for a minute because Heiser actually goes on more about this in the Faith Life Study Bible where he says, trees play a particularly interesting role in this faith, uh, which he's referring to the Israelite faith. Sites marked by trees often became, became associated with appearances of Yahweh that involved divine revelation. For example, in Genesis 12, 6-7, the oak at Shechem commemorated Yahweh's appearance to Abram with the promises of the covenant. Later, in Genesis 35-4, it, mar it marks the place where Jacob buried his family idols to fulfill a vow to Yahweh. Due to these events, the oak at Shechem became a sacred site. It was considered a place of divine residence and encounter many years after the patriarchs. In Joshua 24-25-27, Joshua erected a stone at the oak of Shechem containing a portion of the word of God. The site was chosen for its significance as a holy place for the God of Israel. In Judges 9, 5-6, Gideon's son, Abimelech, was declared king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. The pillar at the town of Shechem also appears later in the same chapter. 
There, the tree is associated with divine revelation. Judges 4, 4 through 5, contains a similar association of a tree with divine revelation. There, the prophetess Deborah customarily sat under the palm tree of Deborah to fulfill her ministry. In 2 Samuel 5, 24-25, God tells David to listen for the sound of marching in the tops of the basalm trees at a sign, as a sign to attack the Philistines. The guidance was supernatural. Later in Israel's history, the land was apparently dotted with trees, or pillars to mimic a tree, to mark the location of false gods and their place of worship. These high places and their pillars were ubiquitous. Pagan tree symbols were particularly associated with the goddess Asherah. This unfortunate evolution profaned a sacred symbol of Israel and Yahweh's presence with the nation. God angrily spews judgment of such places in Ezekiel 6, 13. Okay, so I know that was a lot of reading, but if you're following with me here, uh, trees could be a sacred place where you found the one true God. At least that's the way they started. It eventually evolved into a, a kind of like marker for any kind of divine supernatural presence that people might come in contact with. But here when we start looking at Abraham's story, we see him using trees as like sacred places. Now, if you remember back to the story of, uh, of Abraham and Lot, we get to a place where they split and they go two different directions. We did a whole podcast episode on that. Now, you might recall at that time that uh, the two made two very different decisions. They, they said, you know, we can, we can move wherever we want. Uh, Lot, you go one way and I, Abraham, will go the other. Now, um, Lot decides to move into, um, well, to quote the Bible in Genesis 13, 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So here you see, like, we've already got this idea that Sodom is not a good place. There's a lot of sin there. It didn't just happen overnight. It's already been that from the moment that, uh, um, from the moment that, that Lot set his eyes on it. So you have this interesting story where when Lot and Abraham have to split up, Lot is starting to tiptoe in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where all this evil is known to be. But which direction does uh, Abraham go? Well, in verse 18, uh, it says, Abram, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So it's in this place that we have uh, this terebinth, this sacred tree, if you will, uh, this, this oak of Mamre, where Abraham has settled. Lot has headed towards the direction of where all this sin is known to take place, whereas Abraham has made an altar by a sacred tree um, in the presence of God. And now when we run into God walking around uh, in, in chapter 18, where we are today, well, I'm almost, it's almost like if we're thinking like an ancient person, would we be as surprised as we are? I mean, Abraham has camped out by a place where uh, you might think of a, a divine being appearing. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. So 
This kind of sets the scene for everything that we're getting into in Genesis 18. Um, we've got this understanding of God already physically walking on the earth, if you will, Jesus uh, walking on the earth in the Old Testament. And then you've got uh, uh, your understanding of the physical location where Abraham is. And we now that we're thinking of the Oaks of Mamre, we're thinking, okay, so we might expect God to show up here. Abraham's already built an altar to God here because God talked to him here at one point. Uh, but we're also, just by the mention of the Oaks of Mamre, we're starting to remember, I don't know, when, when do we hear about that last? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was when Lot and Abraham separated. Lot went towards the city of Sin, and Abraham went towards this sacred place where God uh, met him. So now that story is starting to come back to our mind. We're like, oh, so if we're paying attention, if we're remembering what the Oaks of Mamre are, this must be the continuation of the story of Abraham and Lot, because these words are starting to make us go back to that. Okay, scene's been set. Let's take a moment and just kind of process that, and then let's move forward into chapter 18. Chapter 18, I'm going to read a lot here without uh, saying too much, um, and then the further we get in, we're, we're going to pause as we go throughout it. So let's start in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and, and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. All right. Let's pause for a moment right here. Uh, all the other times that Abraham runs into God, it seems like there is a altar created, kind of like as maybe partially as like a memory of a moment where God has met them, uh, met him, but also as like a moment of like, this is sacred space. I just met God here. An altar should be made to God. In this particular case, we don't see an altar, altar made. Instead, we see a lot of hospitality, like great hospitality. He's running around and he's preparing food uh, as quickly as he can and trying to give them space to to uh, uh, set up. I, I like what uh, 
Nahum Sarna points out in the JPS Torah commentary right here. He says, unlike the previous theophanies, this one is not accompanied by the act of worship or the building of an altar. In actual fact, hospitality to strangers itself becomes an act of worship. As the Talmud puts it, hospitality to wayfarers is greater than welcoming the divine presence. So, you know, this is kind of later commentary on the idea, but uh, I do like kind of the way that Sarna puts it right there. You have this um, this way of looking at hospitality as a way of worship, uh, which is, you know, it kind of feels like a lot of things that you hear in church sometimes where people are like, ah, music isn't, isn't worship, which... It is. Don't get me started on that because I love music and how we use it for worship. But I understand the point they're trying to make, right? Where they're saying music is alone is not worship. Music is what you do with your lives and and how you love God. And here we see um, Abraham loving God, not just by singing or bowing or making an altar, but by preparing a meal and uh, having it uh, with this person, with with God and these two angels. So he's worshiping God in another way by by loving God in this way. I, I just thought that was kind of a profound point that they made. So here we don't see Abraham set up a altar per se, but we do see Abraham uh, showing great hospitality, great hospitality um, to these people who have just come by uh, his house, to these spiritual beings who have just come by his house. Uh, let's pick up verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, like, yeah, she doesn't have periods anymore. She's well beyond the ability to procreate or give uh, birth to children. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So in this case, when she's saying her Lord is old, that's not caps lock Lord. That's like her husband. My, my husband is old and I, I shall have pleasure. Uh, pleasure right there too. I just find this word interesting. It only shows up in this form once in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word, Edna, Edna mode. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was a reference to Incredibles. Uh, it's just the word Edna. Um, Edna right here, uh, it's the only place it shows up in the Bible. And of course we understand that it's referring to sexual pleasure of some sort, right? Because we're talking about them having a baby here. So Sarah, to some extent, is like, really? I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to experience sex and the pleasure that comes with that at this age? Mm, I don't think so. Um, that being said, though, there's some translations of this word because it's the only time it shows up in the Bible. So, of course, that makes it difficult to fully translate because you don't have a lot of other instances to try to work it around. But pleasure, um, sexual pleasure is obviously the overtones here. Um, but what's interesting is the Hebrew word Eden, you know, like the Garden of Eden, there could be some reference in this creation here of the word pleasure, um, Edna, to Eden, which, you know, I don't know how far to take that, but I just, uh, 
there's kind of some beauty of the intimacy of marital sex kind of being weaved between like the Garden of Eden and the pleasure found there in everything that is good, but also in uh, marital sex. And then pleasure just being seen as uh, a, a play on the word Eden, if you will. So again, it's the only time we have reference here. Faith Life Study Bible just says that uh, the Hebrew Eden used for pleasant clothing and food may be related to Edna. So they just see the possible connection. However, Sarna in the JPS commentary would say uh, Hebrew Edna is now known to mean abundant moisture and is an exact antonym of withered. So it could also be like this. I'm worn out. I'm withered. And now I'll have (laughs) abundant moisture, which, of course, is a very... um, If that is the way we're supposed to translate that, that seems to have some kind of uh, sexual connotations in itself, maybe? I don't know. But either way, it could just be the analogy. I'm worn out, and now I'm supposed to be full of life. (laughs) So... Do with it what you will. The word's not, you know, central to the story. We all know they're talking about sex. I just wanted to pause there because I I saw some interesting studies on that. Okay, so picking back up, verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? All right, pause right there. This is is interesting. It's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. I don't know if you notice this in the Gospels. But there are a lot of times in the Gospels where Jesus just knows what other people are thinking. For example, in Matthew 12, 25, you have him uh, knowing the Pharisees' thoughts. And then he gives them this whole spiel about what they're thinking right after. In Luke 5, 22, um, the scribes and Pharisees are questioning Jesus, uh, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? So like Jesus, again, is reading the room and reading their thoughts. And let's do one more just for illustration. Luke uh, 6, 8, there's that story where uh, there's a man who has a hand who's withered and Jesus uh, wants him to stretch it out, but uh, it's the Sabbath, and the scribes and Pharisees are watching to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath, and that's where uh, uh, in 6, 8, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and then he has him stretch out his hand and heal it. So anyways, these stories have just really been sticking out to me lately, and um You know, I usually just kind of lump, well, there's there's two different ways to think about it. One, first off, let me say this. I'm not thinking like Jesus is psychic, okay? Like, hmm, we all have the power in Jesus to unlock psychic abilities to read other people's minds. Uh, Rather, it either seems to be like a discernment factor, maybe a gift of the Holy Spirit to just kind of look at another person and just like, You can perceive what's going on inside and how they're processing something. Maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like there's been statements I've seen made or made myself where I can look in the other person's eyes and just kind of feel like I know what they're thinking I'm saying, and that's not what I'm saying. So I don't know. Maybe there's just like this deeper discernment that 
could be like this gift of the Holy Spirit to discern how people are thinking and saying, or maybe it's just like a, a Jesus thing uh, where he's able to just kind of know the thoughts of, of the people around him because uh, with Jesus in the Old Testament, as I've already talked about that, we see here with Abraham that like, well, sorry, with Sarah, we see that he knew Sarah's thoughts. And in the New Testament, you see uh, him knowing people's thoughts as well. For me, since uh, I believe the Bible kind of shows us this picture that Jesus lays down uh, much of his supernatural um, abilities and instead so that he can become fully human, it makes sense to me that uh, it's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit on him to discern the thoughts of or perceive the thoughts of people around him. But I'm not talking about like psychic powers or anything like that, just the Holy Spirit giving him discernment to to kind of read that around him. Anyways, I, I get all into that because here you have um, pre-incarnate Jesus in the way that I've described it so far, uh, reading Sarah's thoughts, and then incarnate Jesus later reading the Pharisees and the scribes' thoughts uh, in the few examples that we looked at. Um, but but here he is calling Sarah out. So he's talking to Abraham, but really we're now noticing, mm, really he's talking to Sarah. Sarah's not even the, in the room. She's outside of the tent, kind of like eavesdropping, it seems. But uh, um, this uh, the, the Lord, Yahweh, here in front of Abraham, seems to know she's out there and is talking to her on her behalf. And then, again, let's just revisit this passage Sarah hears that she's going to have a baby and that, you know, she's going to experience pleasure in this late age. And it says, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? But then here's what happens. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't know. That just that that makes me laugh a little bit right there because Sarah's not in the room. I wonder did anyone hear her laugh except for Yahweh who's in in the tent? Uh, but he he perceives her thoughts. Like it, it doesn't seem that Sarah just like outside of the tent. Ha ha ha! Am I so old that I will experience pleasure? Rather, the Lord just kind of like hears her thoughts and like, why did you laugh and say that? So. Uh, God then speaks a prophetic word. Shall I indeed, sorry, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, and this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible, no, but you did. <laughs> I mentioned it before, but I just love the grammaticalness to that sentence. No, but you did. Uh, coming right out of the mouth of God right there. But this uh, this has a few other overtones in it. Um, if you remember, Abraham laughed about the same thing in last week's podcast episode. God tells Abraham, look, you're going to have a, a kid. And then Abraham falls on his face and and laughs, right? That's That's his... His reaction to God telling him at this age that he's going to have a, a child. And so Isaac, again, that means he laughs. That's, a, that's the definition of the name Isaac. He laughs. So 
that's a reminder anytime that you say Isaac's name, you're going to remember when I told you about this prophetic word, you laughed about it. And now here you have Sarah doing the same thing. She is laughing about it. All right. Now, one last thing before we take our next break is uh, there's this moment where, where God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that just that word really sticks out to me right there, because actually, perhaps a more literal translation is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Actually, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And that word just really hits me, because there's this other moment where the angel of the Lord shows up in Samson's story, and uh, the, the word wonderful comes up here as well. In Judges 13, 18, uh, first off, the angel of the Lord has that same characteristic he always does where he's acting like God. He's kind of talked about as though he is God, but uh, at the same time, he's the angel of the Lord. So he's not God, but he is God. Anyways, in Judges 13, 18, there's this moment where they ask him his name and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Now, the Faith Life Study Bible comments on this particular passage saying, the Hebrew word here, pili, elsewhere describes miraculous signs from God. Its occurrence here on the lips of the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh in human form, and right there's an example. There you have a study Bible saying, like, this is God in human form, um, provides a subtle connection with the notion that the Messiah would also be Yahweh embodied, since the same term appears in Isaiah 9.6. So if we were to go to Isaiah 9.6, we see, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here you have the word wonderful used to say like um, the wonderful counselor. Wonderful is an adjective used for uh, Jesus when he is a child born in a manger. It's also um, this wonderful name that's going, uh, that this angel's like, my name is too wonderful. And now if we take it all the way back to today's theophany, where we are looking at uh, um God saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Really is saying, like, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And that just strikes me. It catches me off guard because this word, we now are seeing, like, it's starting to kind of get lumped up. And part of the reason that I didn't even notice that at first is because my particular translation, the ESV, says, is anything too hard for the Lord? But if you look at the footnote there, the ESV also points out, or it could mean wonderful. Um, so right there, you just find something interesting that, I don't know, you just, just want to point that out. Uh, with that being said, we've now covered another part of 18. Um, let's keep moving ahead here.
All right, so this story in general is very intriguing to me. I mean, first off, you just got God walking around talking like this is normal, and it catches us all off guard. Some of the things that I think we've already hit on, you know, it takes us a little deeper to say, hmm, these things are, are quite interesting. Um, but uh, now we get into some even more interesting territory. Uh, we are headed towards the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but like I said, we're going to get into that next week. This is everything that leads up to it. So Genesis 18, 16 is where we pick up from where we left off. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. Now that phrase right there, look down, it's actually, um, used a few other times in the Bible that, uh, um, usually kind of describes like God executing judgment. Like he's looking down upon, um, upon what's going on on the earth. So right there, you see when he's looking down at Sodom, those words in other places in the Bible kind of strike up an image of, of judgment already. So we already see kind of where we're headed, though the Bible's already painted that picture when Lot moved towards Sodom, where sin was already said to be. Uh, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So let's pause right there. Uh, here God is trying to um, decide, you know, like, should I tell Abraham about what's to happen? I'm headed to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's stuff that's going to go on when we get there. Uh, should I bring this to his attention? What's interesting to me is that this kind of paints a picture uh, of sorts of the divine council. Now, we talked about this on the podcast too, but the divine council is more or less spiritual beings that meet with God to make decisions about what's going to happen on the earth. And I write about this more in my book, The Rush and the Rest, or if you want the Sparknotes version of that, my other book, Fantasy IRL, which is like 400 pages shorter. <laughs> but the Divine Council more or less is like spiritual beings in a courtroom making decisions. So uh, one of the most famous examples is of the prophet Micaiah, who uh, watches God say, all right, I've decided that this king has to go. How are we going to make him go? And a spirit comes up, uh, which spirit can kind of be a, a word to identify any particular kind of it's a lump word for any kind of spiritual being. Could be an angel, could be something else, or some other form of an angel, higher class, lower class, whatever the case may be. A spirit comes up before God, like, well, you want to get rid of this king? How about we do it this way? And God's like, hmm, yeah, that'll work. So, like, that right there is an example of how God works with others to come to his conclusions, to make judgments, and to... Uh, work through different ideas. You also see the watcher angels later when they cast judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, they say this is by the decree of the watchers, which, you know, may be like God made the complete motion and told the watchers to deliver the message. Or it could be, since we've already seen, like Micaiah saw that God worked with others, it could be that the watchers are like, we came up with this decision, God has approved this decision. So Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't repent of your pride, this is the decision that will happen to you um, by the decree of the watchers. So you see these examples throughout the Bible that God works with others. And now we're starting to see um, God work with humanity in a similar, well, just in a way that strikes up those images of, of the divine counsel. 
Um, here he is given, uh, should God's pauses and is like, should I talk to him about what I'm about to do? And as we continue, we're going to see Abraham wants to speak into that conversation and see if he can uh, talk with God more about what is what, how to go about that. So you see almost like this human being now participating in something that looks like the divine counsel. He's speaking into a situation, recognizing that God is the ultimate one who calls the shots and makes the decisions. Uh, but Abraham now is kind of partaking in that. And Paul, of course, saw us really partaking in that down the road, especially when he tells us that one day we're going to judge angels, um, which would be like, in the end, when God has done away with evil or when, when God has brought us to like the fullness of whatever kind of glory he brings us into from glory to glory, you know, we keep moving higher. One day we'll get to this point where just as angels once called judgments, spirits once called judgments, now we're the ones making the call. So you see us moving that direction. But here I was surprised to, now that I've understood a bit more of the divine counsel, I'm surprised way back in the Bible to already see God bringing humanity into like a decision of judgment. Abraham, I, I, you know, do I really need to hide this from you? I, I think I should just tell you. And why? Why does he tell him? Uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Why does why does God think that maybe he should tell him? Well, partially because Abraham's going to be this great and mighty nation. They're they're the ones who are going to bring blessing. So maybe God should have this conversation with him, seeing as like you know the direction that that Abraham's descendants are going to come. Uh, and it is about to become a question of uh, understanding the world. Why do bad things happen and things like that? And so some extent, maybe this is even like a learning process for Abraham. Abraham, there is judgment coming. I feel like maybe we should talk about this so that you can understand um, why I do some of the things I do. Because you know the situation at Sodom and Gomorrah, and now you're about to have the ethical conversation of me bringing my judgment and you, as this big nation down the road, you're going to have to practice ethical judgment and righteousness and all these kinds of things. So let's use this as like a learning experiment. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. We get these images of the possibility of learning alongside the images of Abraham kind of stepping into a human divine counsel type role, um, given what God wants to do with his nation down the road. Now, we further see this as like a, a moment of learning um, righteousness because of where God continues. Um, so let's just start back. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him. So Abraham, in the New Testament, you have like the elect, right? Uh, some are elected to to Christianity. Again, we've talked about this, but election to me, it's not as complicated as people make it out to think. Some are like, oh, well, God's chosen everyone who's going to be saved already and nothing else matters. So if you're not getting in, you're not getting in. It is what it is. 
But elect is more just the understanding that like we don't get saved ourselves. God's the one who chooses us. So that's not to say that someone out there who is not elect right now may not become elect. It's rather that like when they are elected to be a follower of God, when they are elected to uh, become a Christian and to receive the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be of anything they did. It's because God has offered them uh, salvation. So, you know, that word just gets confused by so many to mean a predestination type of thing, which you know, some things could be predestined. Of course, God can choose what he wants to happen. And like Jeremiah, he was chosen while he was still in the womb. That's predestination. Uh, but the idea of election right here, you see it right here. God saying, I have chosen Abraham. In other words, like I've elected Abraham. He's the one that that I've chose. Abraham did not choose himself to be my people. I chose him. So I think we just need to have a proper understanding of that word. By, by definition, all of the Israelites were elect. They were God's chosen elected people. But that did not mean that they were therefore just getting into heaven because plenty of the Israelites, despite the fact that by their birthright, they were God's elect chosen people, many of them worshiped false idols and walked the path to hell with false gods. That's that does not therefore mean that they're just getting in. We talked about that in our circumcision episode. Uh, but right here, we're seeing this, this idea of Abraham being chosen, of being elect again. So back to 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So... Again, we see this as a teaching experience. Abraham, I'm about to um, perform righteousness and justice on Sodom and Gomorrah through my judgments. Um, let's have a conversation about this because you need to teach your own children about what righteousness and justice is. Now, the fact that we're using words like righteous and justice here shows us that we serve a God um, who cares about social justice. I know this word gets thrown around a lot today and gets slathered with all kinds of thoughts, which is unfortunate because the Bible is very, very clear that God cares about social justice, cares about us loving our neighbors. We know that. That's like one of the most important rules, Jesus tells us, right? We got to love God. Marie just preached on that this past week. But one of the ways in which we love God, if we're truly loving God, we're going to what? We're going to love our neighbors. So by all means... Um, social justice is very important. Taking care of those around us and they're less fortunate, uh, those who are less fortunate is very important. Um, and K.A. Matthews in uh, the New American Commentary, which by the way, his, his commentary on Genesis is just a really great commentary. It's been one of my favorites as we've been moving through this. So K.A. Matthews, it's the New American Commentary, but he wrote uh, two, two volumes on, um, on Genesis alone. It's well worth a read. Um, but he points out that right and just are popular forensic terms, but here their meaning is carrying out of ethical demands. It is a matter of doing what is right, especially social justice. And he points out a lot of other passages throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, where um, you see that, that 
justices being called upon by God that he would come and do away with violence and oppression um, and and take care of of those who who need um, his justice to come. So that being said, social justice here um, is a part of the conversation with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because if we know that like um, God wants Abraham to teach his children, who teach their children, who teach their children about righteousness and justice, and the reason he's bringing up righteousness and justice is because of Sodom and Gomorrah, then we know that Sodom and Gomorrah has no room for righteousness, no room for justice, and that includes the love for neighbor taking care of those around you. So, uh, again, let's pick up, I know we keep backtracking, but I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So righteousness and justice, that's important for where Israel's headed. And it's something that Sodom and Gomorrah do not have. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. All right, outcry is uh, said here, um, and that, that again, that's an important word. So, um, there was a lot said in commentaries about this particular word. So I- I'm going to read a little bit here, starting with, uh, again, K.A. Matthews in the New American Commentary. He says, If the outcry has reached heaven, surely it had been heard by Abraham at nearby Mamre. The magnitude of their iniquity has probably been known to the whole region since Sodom held the prominent place among allied cities. The Hebrew words translated outcry Uh, may describe the woeful cry of victims who suffer injustice or express grief over distressful circumstances. Cries of lament may also be petitions for deliverance from oppressors or for for help. The prophets liken the social injustices committed in Israel slash Judah to the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, indicating that the outcries were related to social offenses. So like, pause right there for a second. Uh, Ezekiel 16.49, when Ezekiel's looking back at what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, what he says is, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So here you have God speaking to Ezekiel, look, there was more going on at Sodom and Gomorrah than the story that you originally had. They actually, like, they had all this food, they weren't taking care of the poor and needy, um, they had pride, uh, they, they did all sorts of social injustices. So right here you see, like, again, righteousness and justice, this is important to God, and when Ezekiel is giving the prophetic word from God about what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, like there's greater depravity than that which we see in the story uh, in Genesis. Now, the story in Genesis goes very deep as to how messed up things are. I mean, just imagine you walk into a town and everyone there, regardless of age, every man comes up and wants to rape you. Like, 
that is a really dark depth of an entire town just falling apart. But there's more than that. Like there is unrighteousness and injustice in like every dimension. So for God to have uh, the cries, you know, reach his ears about what's going on here, um, this this place is is a very dark place. So in its full image, Sodom and Gomorrah is just painted as a place that's completely um, out of whack with what God is uh, has designed the world to be, right? It's falling apart as far as love for neighbor, taking care of those around you. But it's also like, it's painted in a sense as like an anti-Eden. Because if in Eden, God established order, and that order was man and woman, married uh, for life to one another, and this is what marriage looks like. Um, Well, in this, you see that sex is practiced outside of marriage. You see that it is uh, desired of everyone. Not even that, it's like taken from everyone. And it's not male and female. In this case, it's male and male. It's just like the complete anti-image of Eden. There's complete chaos at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, on a sexual level, also um, on a societal level. You know, the idea of just walking into town and everybody wants to rape you, perhaps because they haven't had sex with you before, that's, everyone can agree that that's messed up, you know? So the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, like, it's it's pretty big. Uh, now, Sarna actually continues talking about how this word outcry talks about all this social justice stuff too. And I just want to read from him as well, because I want us to understand that they're still like just to think of Sodom and Gomorrah and just complete moral lapse. The sin of Sodom then is heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. The prophet Jeremiah identified Sodom with adultery, false dealing, and the encouragement of evildoers, all without any feelings of contrition. And then Sarna goes on to talk about the Ezekiel passage we just read, so let's fast forward. The indictment of Sodom lies entirely in the moral realm. There is no hint of cultic offense, no whisper of idolatry. As with the flood story, the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative assumes the existence of a universal moral law that God expects all humankind to follow. The idea that there is an inextricable connection between the social and moral behavior of a people and its ultimate fate is one of the pillars upon which the entire biblical interpretation of history stands. So, you know, if part of what Sarna is saying there at the end, if God is judge of the earth and of all things, it doesn't matter if you're Christian or pagan or Muslim or atheist or whatever you might uh, choose, like If we are, as a people, made in God's image, going to choose to just embrace things that are not of God and to not do justice to our neighbor, it doesn't matter how far you try to, like, you know, escape God's wrath or God's judgment, if you will, because God is the only judge and can bring judgment on any of us. So that's just an important thing to remember, like, God has standards on us, regardless of who we might say we follow or who we are. Uh, there is only one God who is the judge in the end. So we we all have to face his judgment. And that's what the book of Revelation shows us. Like, we all come before him. 
And Jesus is the only way that we will survive that judgment because he is the one who will wipe our slates clean and uh, release us from the sins that, that we have committed. So uh, with that being said, again, we're going a little deeper into this story. Um, and there's a lot here that's pointing us again to um, judgment and the chaos of previous stories in which God has come to uh, bring his judgment on chaos. So we saw like uh, we saw some key words that were said throughout this passage that maybe we missed. Um, so let's go back to Genesis 18:20. Then the Lord said, "Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, that Hebrew word right there is actually tying us back to the story of the flood, in which uh, the flood was brought upon humanity." Uh, um, because uh, great was the evil of humanity. So you have this word great that's being used here. So we're, we're thinking of this big flood, the justice that was the justice and judgment poured out at that point. But we're also thinking of the Tower of Babel uh, because um, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. But then God says, I will go down and I will go down. That's uh, an expression that was used at the Tower of Babel when the Lord came down to see and said, uh, you know, let us go down and check this out. That right there, that's all language of judgment again that was on the Tower of Babel. And then uh, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. That phrase, they have done, right there, that echoes the the first murder that, that Cain committed. You may recall in Genesis 4.10 where, where God shows up and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So you have this, what have you done? What Sodom and Gomorrah has done? Uh, just very obviously in all of these statements, you have ties back to monumental stories in the Bible. Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, in the same way that these places had seen judgment because of their injustice and unrighteousness. So you see in this story, God is seeing that a place is, is reaching the similar places that these places did. And so the words are linking us back to stories to, to start to get our minds to think like Sodom and Gomorrah is not just like, ah, oh, it's an average place where things are not so bad, but I'm just going to pour out judgment. No, rather this place is like beyond help. Yeah, actually, there, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about the iniquity of the Amorites. We already covered this in Genesis 15, 16, but when God is telling um, Abraham, like, I'm going to give you all the land of, of Canaan. I'm going to give that to your descendants. Uh, he tells them that they'll come back there in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That, that right there, like this sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's just this idea. And the way that I interpret it is like, look, the Amorites, they're headed down a bad path. But you know what? They're not so bad yet that I need to, to bring a, um, holy war on them and remove them from this place. Uh, rather, it's just, they're not ready for that kind of judgment. They, that kind of judgment does not belong on them at this time. But in four generations, I can already see where they're headed and where things are going to be by then. So that's when the iniquity will be complete. And then 
this judgment of holy war will come upon them. Like that right there in that statement is this idea that like God is patient and waiting for like the totality of of darkness to make a place unredeemable. And you see him uh, sometimes, like, even in places where it just seems like it's unredeemable, you still see him say, like, I'm going to be patient and wait. For example, the story of Nineveh, that's that's backwards from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, you actually have Abraham trying to convince God not to bring, uh, not to blow it up, partially because his his nephew Lot is there. Um but in the story of of Jonah, like Jonah kind of wishes God would blow up these people. Instead, God's like, no, I'm not going to do that because they repented. So Sodom and Gomorrah, when you compare these two stories, you see like Sodom and Gomorrah is obviously so far depraved that they're beyond a place where they'll repent. They're totally fine with what they're doing and they have no problem uh, with the the evil way in which they're carrying out their lives. Whereas with Nineveh, God knew like, look, this place is headed in a similar direction where I might need to end it, but let's give them a chance to repent. And Sod- oh, sorry, Nineveh does repent, and so God doesn't bring on them the judgment, even though Jonah wanted them to. It, Jonah's like the opposite of Abraham in these stories. So you see that God, like even with the pagans, even with the outside nations that are committing these evils, there's this hope that is inhuman to some extent, uh, that he would look at a place as far gone as Sodom and Gomorrah and still, like in this particular story, I got to go down and check it out for myself to see if the outcry is as great as we've heard it in heaven. Like that's kind of the story, the way it's narrated. Uh, With Nineveh, like, all right, I'm going to give them one last chance to repent. And they do, and suddenly he's like, okay, I'm not going to bring judgment on them. This is how patient God is. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is just one of those stories trying to teach us about righteousness and justice, and uh, as well as like when God's judgment is appropriate. And that's what, what Abraham is going to ask next. He's going to get into a moral dilemma that a lot of people have asked all the questions that Abraham's about to ask in just a moment. So let's take a break and come back and jump into a conversation that people today are like, oh, we need to talk about this. Look, Genesis 18, conversation's already being had. So let's go into that next.
continuing the story, Genesis 18, 22. This is where the divine counsel aspect of Abraham continues. Just as a spirit might come before God's throne and strike up a conversation about justice, so you have, in this case, Abraham coming before God, recognizing that God is the one true judge, uh, but wanting to know that God truly is going to judge righteously and well. And so Abraham has questions to approach him with, to approach the throne with, and and just kind of like speak into the situation. He's going to make uh, some negotiations with him. So um, here's, here's what happens. Abraham intercedes for Sodom, starting in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find Sodom... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay, pause uh, for a moment. Uh, Here you see Abraham questioning, you know, like he knows that God is just. And so he's dealing with his own moral dilemma here. Like, all right, so God, I know Sodom is messed up. There's a lot of evil there. uh, But what about those who are righteous? Like they get burned up too because the people around them are, are doing evil. Like, does that seem fair? Does that seem just? And God hears what Abraham is saying, and he's like, look, you know what? You're right. If there's 50 righteous people there, I'll spare that place. So God is understanding the moral dilemma that Abraham has and understanding like how Abraham is trying to process, like, why would bad things happen to good people uh, in this town? Like, that's going to happen if there's any good people here who get Um, destroyed along with the wicked. So Abraham's processing this age-old question of of this. Um, But he's also thinking of his son or his nephew, Lot, right? Like, to some extent, you got to wonder how much of that is really on Abraham's mind. Like, please don't don't take my nephew. Uh, That's a lot what is probably going through his mind. Um, But another thing that's very interesting to note here is, like, God is is very open <laughs> um, to the idea that uh, if he finds a few righteous people, then he wouldn't have to destroy it. Uh, it's almost as though, like, you know, he's he's hoping, like, if we could find just a few righteous people, that could really turn the place around. So 50 righteous? Sure. And this is where Abraham keeps pushing forward. Uh, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. So he's putting himself in in the right place. Look, I'm dust and ashes. You are God. But let me talk again, if you don't mind. So he continues, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, 
I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, for, uh, sorry, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So here you partially see the power of prayer, right? Because prayer is like sending a petition to God. Uh, God, would you heal this person over here? Would you help this person with what they're going through over here? God, would you protect us in what we're going through this? These are all like petitions to God. Uh, it's conversation with God too. But in this case, it's like intercessory prayer. You're interceding on behalf of someone. And here we see that Abraham is making a difference within kind of the divine counsel idea. God is a human being who follows you. I'm just asking, would you do this thing on behalf of these people? And here you see God, like he's, he's uh, listening to Abraham. Uh, we don't know like what he had in mind before, but we see that he is taking Abraham's thoughts into account. You know, could Abraham have asked like five and what would God have done? I, I don't know. Um, but maybe Abraham at this point, maybe Abraham's even thinking like, oh man, 10 people, you only find 10 righteous there. Even I'm kind of pushing this, like, how's that city going to turn around with 10 righteous people? Maybe that's what's going through his mind. Uh, why does Abraham stop at 10? Sarna would at least say that uh, Abraham has reached the limit of the ability of a righteous individual to outweigh the cumulative evil of the community. 10 is a round and complete number that symbolizes totality. 10 persons thus constitute the minimum effective social entity. So he sees meaning behind the number, but also like perhaps this idea that Abraham even knows like now he's pushing <laughs> as to like if that city could really uh, be saved with only 10 righteous people there. But uh, he doesn't have to like strong arm God into lowering this number at all. Like God, God's answer is not given, like you see Abraham's continually afraid of what he's about to ask, but God's answer is always with the same tone. All right, for 20, sure, I, I, I'll spare it. Yeah, for 10, I'll spare it. So uh, for God, you see like God's mercy is very hopeful. Like, oh, I hope we can find 10 there, then I can spare it because who knows what I could do with 10 righteous people. Um, but we also know that this, that's not the case. When God gets there, there isn't 10 righteous people. It is seriously that depraved. Because if there were 10 righteous people, you saw God saying, like, I would spare it. But he gets there, and the outcry is exactly what it, it sounded like uh, from heaven, if you will. You know, he already knows what it's like, but nonetheless, he's going there, and he, he sees the evidence that this place truly is as bad as... Uh, as all the prayers against it have made it out to be. So that's part of the the story that continues to get painted, and that part we're going to get into next week. But before we do that, I, I do just want to talk a little bit more about kind of like the... I want to close out just talking a little bit more about the psychological conversation or the, sorry, philosophical conversation. Um, because here you you have like Abraham trying to deal with, I know God is just... 
but how can a just God get rid of, of, of people who are righteous? These good people living among bad people, how can, how can he do that? So I want to read uh, just a few more commentaries as we close out, uh, starting with K.A. Matthews. Again, the New American Commentary says, Abraham was at a moral impasse. If the cities are destroyed, the innocent suffer. In which case, the justice of God becomes suspect. Or if the cities are spared, the guilty escape their just deserts, again, impugning the integrity of God. His prayer, therefore, was that the mercy of God would deliver the city to which God agrees for the sake of the righteous. But was there no end to the mercy of God? Was, was there a point at which unlimited mercy became a shallow sentimentalism obviating the justice of God against the wicked. So Matthews points out some of the philosophical dilemma that that the Bible is kind of working through right here, um, just in the sense that, like, you know, if these bad people, tons and tons of these bad people who only have wickedness in their heart are allowed to continue to perform that wickedness, then there's going to be more and more corruption taking over the earth. Uh, But if God removes them and there's good people among them, these good people, these righteous people uh, are going to face unjust suffering. So the Bible understands, like, these are complicated conversations. Uh, Sarna, even when he looks at, like, some of the things that um, once Abraham starts trying to talk God down to, like, just how many righteous he can, uh, can find before he, he ends up, uh, you know, bringing justice upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Sarna looks at that conversation. He says this more complicated is Abraham's second request that the entire city be spared for the sake of an innocent minority. This is no longer a simple appeal to the, to the attribute of justice, but a call for divine mercy. It carries with it two implications. Indirectly, it asserts that there is a greater infraction of justice in the death of an innocent few than in allowing a guilty majority to escape retribution. It assumes that the merit of a minority is powerful enough to overcome the wickedness of the majority. These are major themes in later biblical literature because divine mercy can also be divine tolerance of evil, a problem of serious dimensions to the prophet and sage alike. So all that being said, you just, you see like uh, the complicated conversation that's going on here. And if you think of the book of Job, you, you see it all over again, right? Like Job is a righteous man coming in contact with injustice and he's unsure of how to kind of bring God into that picture. Uh, and we see all the way back with Abraham, you know, Abraham's thinking of just people who um, are going to face injustice and how to um, bring God into that picture. So this is a conversation that the Bible has, um, seen plenty of times before people started asking the question today. So we don't need to worry that God, uh, has no concern as to what we, um, think of that. Like he's showing here in the Bible, like, I understand that this is a dilemma, but you need to understand that God's justice is right. And in the end, what's very interesting with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is God does something in this story that uh, um, really kind of meets uh, the the ethical conversation that's going on, right? Because what ends up happening 
is he takes Lot, who I guess was righteous, you know, (laughs) he doesn't sound super righteous the way he's described, but maybe righteous in comparison to the rest of people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes Lot out of the city, so he removes the righteous family that is there, and then you see his judgment come upon the place. So the righteous are removed, and then judgment comes upon the wicked. So you actually see uh, um, God God doesn't even need to follow through with what Abraham does because he chooses... uh, he performs the most uh, ultimate route of justice that could have happened in that situation, reminding us to just submit uh, our understanding to God. Judgment is not a theme that we like to talk about at all in church today. And uh, what we need to understand biblically is this. Judgment is the Lord's. That's that's the New Testament understanding. We aren't the ones going around trying to bring judgment on people and and trying to uh, um, hope that everything burns and things like that. No. Rather, when something unjust happens to us, we are to subject ourselves to Jesus, who tells us we need to forgive and love our enemies. And then we just allow justice to be the Lord's. So we let him carry that out. We don't carry that out ourselves. And that is uh, what we're seeing here even in the story of Abraham, is Abraham in the end has to subject himself to God's understanding of judgment and justice, knowing that far be it from God to do anything evil, more or less what Abraham's getting at, and God shows us, no, I don't do evil. And Abraham trusted that regardless of what way he went. And we need to need to do the same. We also don't need to make big prophetic statements out of every hurricane and every kind of thing that happens on the earth, claiming that these are God's judgments uh, upon people. You know, like, I don't, I have, I've never trusted any anyone who's made a prophetic declaration about why something like that happened. Um, you know, like, that. that's up to, if God ever were to bring judgment on a place via natural disaster that that's his doing but as far as like the prophets who speak on behalf of like what's happened and why it's happened a lot of that just rubs me the wrong way in modern context it doesn't seem to um often line up with uh god of love it seems to line up with judgment as humanity hopes that it would be brought about so All that being said, um, that was uh, a long entry point into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are going to find ourselves actually in Sodom and Gomorrah on next week's podcast. But for now, just want to talk about all of the stuff that leads us right up to it. So hope that's helpful. We'll continue the story next time on the Midweek Podcast.